humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 248, and I had a conversation with Dr. Chris Kerr. He is an MD and PhD in neurobiology. Uh, His undergrad is in psychology. He's the chief medical officer and chief executive officer for hospice and palliative care in Buffalo, New York. Uh, He is in the documentary on Netflix right now called Surviving Death. And his book, Death is But a Dream, came out uh, February last year in 2020. I'm going to read you a little bit from the description of the book. Christopher Kerr is a hospice doctor. All of his patients die. Yet he has cared for thousands of patients who, in the face of death, speak of love and grace. Beyond the physical realities of dying are unseen processes that are remarkably life-affirming. These include dreams that are unlike regular dream, described as, quote, more real than real, unquote. These end-of-life experiences resurrect past relationships, meaningful events, and themes of love and forgiveness. They restore life's meaning and mark the transition from distress to comfort and acceptance. I loved this conversation. It's right up my alley. Uh, I am (laughs) very much into learning about death and dying and what happens to people when they die or not. Uh, The research, the science, the metaphysics, all that stuff. Uh, When I watched the Netflix special Surviving Death and I saw Dr. Kerr speaking, uh, I, I knew I had to contact him. And he very kindly said yes. And so here we are for this show. Super excited. I cannot wait for you to listen to this episode. I know I say that a lot, <laughs> but I hope y'all get as excited as I do for these for these shows because, man, I love it. Uh, other news, social media, Hey Human Podcast can be found on Instagram and Facebook. You can find my personal social media, Susan Ruthism, S-U-S-R-U-T-H-I-S-M, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Uh, You can email me, Susan, at heyhumanpodcast.com. Go to heyhumanpodcast.com. You'll find a links page with information about every episode, my guests, what we've talked about, articles, books, that kind of thing. Definitely check that out. You'll also find the storefront where you can get Hey Human podcast merch, like cool t-shirts or hats or masks or, you know, just stuff. Help support Hey Human which is an ad-free podcast, and help keep it going. That would be awesome. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, If you want to learn more about me, go to SusanRuth.com. There's a lot of information there about other things that I do. You can also sign up on the mailing list there, and I send out the mailer about every quarter. So definitely check that out. If you like music, Go to iTunes and find my albums. Uh, I'm under Susan Ruth out there in the iTunes universe, and you can find a bunch of music there. Uh, That's about it. Thank you for listening. And again, very excited about this episode. And here we go. Dr. Chris Kerr, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you for having me. It's always funny whenever I meet somebody that is uh, has the credential of doctor. I always feel awkward calling them anything other than doctor. So I know that you said oh, the client, Chris, but yeah, I prefer it. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Well, thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. No pleasure. I learned about you from watching the Netflix series Surviving Death. Right. And uh, you struck me as a fascinating human. And I thought, well, that's somebody I want on the show. <laughs> that's an interesting way to land here. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I suppose. But honestly, to me, death has always been a fascination. And whenever I run across somebody like yourself who is willing to say, look, I know this much, but there's all this other stuff I don't know. And I'm willing to ask the questions and do the research you know, my bell gets rung. So here we are. Good. Well, thank you. Let's start with you just in general. Did you grow up in Buffalo? I know that's where your your offices are. And Yeah, no, I'm Canadian. Uh, I'm from Toronto. That explains everything. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still Canadian. Oh, and actually, I'm spending half my time up there in northern Ontario now looking after my mom. Yeah, that's where I'm from. Oh, what about mom? you? 
uh, I am from originally Seattle. Okay. And, uh, but I, I lived in Nashville for 13 years and now I'm in Los Angeles. What a great town you're in. Yeah, I love it. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I haven't been to a lot of American cities, but I've been to that one a lot and I love it. Yeah. I like yeah. the sunshine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I bet. Yeah. Is your mom sick or just? Yeah, she's frail and she normally lives with me here. We're, we're COVID victims, but because she's Canadian, she can't cross the border. Um, so I'm going there and we're up north in a log cabin um, in the woods and that's where she's happy. So we just take turns caring for her up there. Oh, that's uh, lovely. Yeah, it's worked out well. Yeah. My, oh, brother, right. my brother's in Vancouver, not far from Seattle. But. I know Vancouver well. I went to college in Bellingham, Washington, which is- Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah, yeah. yeah. Spent that's a great. lot of time in BC. Yeah, great place, right? Oh my gosh, it's great. Great restaurants, awesome fashion. It's a, a wonderful hub of so many different cultures and people and- Yeah. Love it. Yeah, wonderful place. So tell me about your childhood and, and how it shaped you into, you said in your, I watched your TED talk, tell me how your childhood shaped you to where you are now. Uh, you know, I, I think, um, I think that uh, children who lo lose parents, that's a special sort of loss, right? And um, um, dependent and how, and at the time and long-term, how it affects you is very much dependent on where you are developmentally. So I'm a 12 year old boy. And um, I think the biggest impact of that loss um, was Is certainly your father. Yeah, yeah, my father was certainly seeing um, the effect it had on my siblings and my mom because you go from a happy, functional, loving family to watching people who are grief-stricken and paralyzed. Um, so it's more than your individual experience of loss. It's really the effect on the entire dynamic, the the family as a whole. Um, it ended up having a profound effect on my life. In fact, I'm here for that reason, actually, because what ended up happening was I lashed out a lot, which a lot of boys do at that age. And I ended up um, getting kicked out of one school and failing grade eight and um, having to go to a military boarding school. And then what ended up happening was um, a gentleman who was a friend of my father's got involved in my life. Um, and he moved from Toronto, he was a surgeon, and he moved from Toronto to Ohio, and that's how I got here. So it's all that traced back to that, um, that loss, yeah. Did your father, I know that he talked to you about, was it fishing? Did, but did, was yeah. that a, did, did he have that end of life experience where he was seeing things or did yeah, he just- very, very, very much. And so our thing was, um, like a lot of Canadians, we love the North and uh, we would fish every year up there. So in his final 24 hours, when he, he was kind of very much in, a, in, in and out of sleep state, he, he was dreaming that we were um, going fishing, he had to catch a plane. And so, and it was something I really didn't talk about. It, it, it's interesting because it was intrinsically, I knew he was comfortable and in a good place which is really what we worry about with people who are lying in a bed, not just the physical dimensionality of their existence, but where are they? Are they okay? Are they suffering? And, um, but then I was taken out of the room. And really then <coughs> what happened was I, you know, I went into medical school and training and part of a very death-defying culture. And um, even in training, so far as when somebody was dying, they were on a teaching service, we would often sign them off our service because there was nothing more for us to do. And so this kind of institutional abandonment of people who are at the end is, is a very real thing. And, um, and then I just happened to be looking for a moonlighting job while I was a fellow in cardiology. And there was a job at hospice on weekends. And then really what happened was I was confronted by what I had seen in childhood, which was that people were having this other inner experience at the end of their life. And um, what's odd is that I was trying to teach it. I was teaching a lot at the time and trying to get people to understand the relevance that people were having this very therapeutic processes, including end of life dreams that were very virtual for them and lived. And, you know, we live in an evidentiary time and people would say, well, there's no evidence for that because it was all kind of case reports or stories or anecdotes or surveys. So that's what launched the research. 
and we took a very rigorous kind of scientific approach to where we used just a standardized questionnaire we asked people daily and we ruled out for confusion you had to pass the test you had to consent there had to be witnesses and then we even filmed some and he, the biggest the funniest part of the whole story is that or the weird part of the story was that this was made for a medical audience and since then we've probably published seven manuscripts and peer-reviewed journals on this phenomena and we film people not for entertainment but just so because we knew people wouldn't believe us or we'd assume that the they would assume the people were old frail wrinkled confused in a gown and so we filmed people to show them because this is we're not about the minutes before death we're sometimes talking about the months and weeks and days and so um the nobody responded in the medical world um i mean it got published but nobody would respond and then what happened is it seeped out into the non-medical community and it went around the world and that was kind of five years ago and we really can't keep up with it so it's been in the washington post new york times the atlantic uh, bbc china ireland india it literally went around the world um, and what it tells you is that and that matters for this reason um, because not that the research is so sophisticated it's that people need to have this contextualized for them or put in a caregiver framework. So people have, and they kind of validated because if you, even you look at the Ted talk, you know, there's, there's a lot of views, but what's more interesting is the comments and the comments are saying, what a great guy comments are people revealing their own histories with us, their own stories. So that's, that's what's kind of propelled it. So we intend to do one thing is my point that medical community didn't really care, but then the people who are the recipients of care. And it's kind of concerning to have that much of a chiasm between the people who provide care and the people who receive care. And clearly this stuff matters. And then it just kind of took off, you know, between the book and Netflix and the documentary, it just kind of had its own life. We, but it was never our intention. So the filming that we were meant for a medical audience ended up being part of the documentary, which is kind of funny. I'm often surprised at medical professionals who aren't willing to hear these stories or to put them off as, oh, that's just that chemical releasing upon death or whatnot. So I love that you are actually cat you're cataloging it so far in advance of someone's passing. Yeah, these people. Because love I them. think that that would rule that out. You're not. Yeah, no. When you see the documentary, it's, it's fascinating because um, a lot of the people are driving and doing their taxes and living independently. So, um, yeah, no, they're not frail, crippled, and anything. If anything, they're actually more insightful, more acutely aware, because you know, dying's a pretty unique vantage point, and it naturally draws you inward, right? you have a different perspective and a different perception. You know, if I told you you had six months to live, the things that you would care about, the trivial issues would go away. And the more profound and meaningful things like your relationships would come to surface. That's what you're going to focus on. And that's what happens naturally within dying. So it's not a big surprise that people have these very in, introspective pieces to the process. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's, it's not the brain, right? It's the mind. It's like, um, and some of these things aren't measurable, like love. Um, um, so they just are. And what's ironic is they're probably the most significant pieces of existence. But because you can't biopsy them or image them or do a lab, um, it's discounted. I mean, phys physicians generally are uncomfortable with dying let alone talking about the experience of dying. Right, because dying is the antithesis of what they were put here for. They're supposed to be keeping people alive and saving them. And it's actually not. The oath in medicine is to treat where possible, cure where possible, but to comfort always. Ah, interesting. So the sword has two sides to the blade. And it was never meant to treat only and abandon at that point. Um, and unfortunately, you know, um, healthcare is, is a comp complex industry. And the economics of healthcare are entirely built on doing things. So you get world class medical care, million dollar care, as long as you're in a treatable bucket, 
right? They'll, you get imaged, you get surgery, you get chemo, you get radiation, you know, appointments after appointments, because there's that follows a, a code of billable intervention. When you are no longer intervenable upon, and there's no longer things to do to that body, then the whole healthcare economy falls by the wayside. There's less to do. Um, so the irony is, when you probably need care most, you receive the least, unless you're going to go into a hospice program. So you, again, literally in a day, when they say there's nothing more we can do to you, you go home. Of course, the irony is this is when you may get most sick and need the most help. So it's, it's a cure-all, treatment-all approach to care. Um, and in doing that, there's almost a denial of the inevitability of death. And of course, we live in an ageist kind of consumer-based healthcare system. So you, you think there's always something you can do, right? Like you can mm -hmm. kind of be able to do something for this. So anyways. Did you find you learned as much from people who didn't have the experiences as those who did? Because I know that you did thousands of, or that 1,400 or 1,500 of yeah. these case studies. What did you learn from the people that didn't have those experiences? Well, they were very few and far between, right? It was like almost 90% did. Um, and a lot of times the ones that didn't, they, we don't really know what their experience was because we may not, the, the, the thing that we did that was very important is we asked them every day because these weren't, these weren't necessarily daily occurrences. Sometimes they were. So catching every day was important. So really, I don't know what the significance is because we may have missed um, them. Um, or they couldn't qualify. They had to follow the study because they became confused or things like that. Um, I, yeah, I'm not sure. I certainly saw people who, there weren't many, but a few people who had witnessed this kind of phenomenon at the end of their life, at the end of their loved one's lives and were waiting for it. And some who were certainly disappointed they weren't experiencing it. I would imagine. I, I recall a friend of mine passed away a few years ago and he, at the time, he and his wife had decided that he wanted to do hospice at home. So they set up a, a hospital bed in the living room and, you know, the kids' rooms were upstairs. And the night that he passed away, uh, Meg, my friend, went up to go tell her kids and she met her son in the hallway. And she said, what are you doing awake? And he said, dad just came up through the floor to say goodbye. And then he passed, right? And she said, yeah, he's, he's gone. And I, I think about that story all the time that. I, it's funny. So I, we, we, we deliberately shied away from the more phenomenologic thing, mm -hmm. uh, but that's a, that's, that's a very, very widely um, reported event where a sudden awakening and you know, that person you're connected to is, is no longer there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah. What do you think is one of the more uh, reoccurring experiences that people had? Was it generally a parent or a sibling? Because I, I remember watching in the in the Netflix special, you talk about children who tend to not have people in their lives that have died, and then and I loved this so much that animals came to them. Yeah. So so the far and away the most common thing is this kind of reunion. Um, so we, we measured realism on a scale of one to 10 and it was 10 out of 10. And we measured the frequency and the frequency goes up dramatically as people get closer to death. And thematically what happens is as you get closer to death, the increased frequency of seeing people return to you who you've loved and lost. And the whole idea of time in life kind of seems to go by the wayside. So you can be 95 years old, but, you know, you lost your mom when you were five, and it's her voice you, you hear. Um, actually, very little is said between the dreamer and the person in the dream, but it seems to be understood. Um, inherently, they come out comforted or understanding or reassured. Um, so that, that by far and away is it. And with the, and with children, they may not have known somebody who have died. So we've got several cases, which we actually published where they know pets or neighbors, pets or grandparents, pets who had died and they returned them. And in the documentary, not the Netflix one, but there's a full length documentary coming. Um, both kids say the same thing. When asked about the significance, they basically said, you know, it means I'm not alone and I'm loved. Um, and of course, you see the animals in health. So, 
Yeah. Was it difficult to be able to get this research underway and really out there? I mean, I know you said it took a while for it to catch steam, but knowing that it, it rides the line next to spirituality and next to the phenomenon and yeah, it actually, it's a great question, and I don't get it enough. Um, so, yeah, the, the issue is gained by a university that has to approve ethically um, working with with people who, who are who are either ill or vulnerable, etc. And it, it's actually kind of an interesting story. They we tend to keep treat dying people like they need to be sterilized, you know, um, and we 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 like they need to be protected. And inadvertently, we isolate them more. And Dine's already lonely. So the IRB, the, in, the review committee, um, originally said no, because they thought we'd be inflicting ourselves on the people. And, and I petitioned. And um, it was really interesting to see if there was anybody in the room actually care for anybody who's dying. Of course, they didn't. And um, I said, because honestly, they're, they're, they really want to be talked to. They want to be heard. And it's one of the best parts. And I talk about this in the book. One of the fascinating things about doing this work, because all the people in the book are real people, and many of them have been filmed, not one person declined to participate. And there's a couple of points there. I think, you know, um, even though there's no secondary gain, they're dying, right? They, they, it still matters they be heard. They want to be relevant. They want to be connect. Most dying people are, 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 aren't able to get out of a bed. They're lying there and they're looking up at a white ceiling. And the best thing for them is to be made to feel human. And the best way to do that is to connect people. And so, yeah, nobody, um, everybody participated. Um, I mean, we're, we're going out on Saturday to fill another family who's caring for a dying child, and there are four of them. And, of course, they said, yeah. And often the family matters a great deal, too, because they feel they're, they're giving that person's life meaning, and they have a story to share, and they live on. So the university wanted to shut it down, but then when I kind of, after I challenged it, um, they agreed to it. Uh, but yeah, you're right. The first time we looked at it, I said, oh, gosh, no. You know. Did you get a lot of pushback from doctors as well? I imagine nurses see so much because they're, they're more present, right? The doctors come in, they do their thing, they leave, and the nurses have such a, a relationship in a lot of ways with the patient, it seems like to me. In, in my past, being in hospital, that was the case. Yeah, so here's the difference. So we have like an ed center at our hospice. We have a very big hospice. We care for like a thousand, about eleven 1, hundred people a day wow. um, between hospice and palliative care. So we have an ed center, and you'll go speak to nurses about this topic, and all you get is head nodding. Eighty percent of them know exactly what I'm talking about. You speak to a medical audience, and they have no idea what you're talking about. The difference is. Not all doctors. There's some doctors like on calls, the, 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 you're, you know, you're preaching to the choir. Generally, the closer you are to the bedside, the more likely you are to know. And in fact, our biggest refer into our first study was actually an aide because she was the most proximate to the person. Hands-on care, present, protected time actually listening to them as people, not just patients. So yeah, you nailed it. The, the nurses, they just know this stuff. It's nothing new to them. Yeah. And tell me about the documentary that's coming and also the book that's coming. You have another book coming up. The, bo the book's out. Oh, the uh, book is out. Okay. Yeah, it's called Death is But a Dream. I think it's in 10 or 11 languages now. It's by Penguin Random House. Um, and uh, it's uh, it's doing very well. It's uh, it's it's based on our research, but told through human stories. Um, and then there's a documentary coming out um, by the same name, "Death Is But a Dream," uh, based on the book using all the film that we had. and it, it's on all the public uh, television stations, like the PBS affiliated those sort of stations. Um, in our area, it's coming out in February twenty second. And in the rest of the country, it's in April yet, but you can, you just have to search for it because the date's not announced yet. Okay. But, but you can find more importantly, if you, if you want to, it's really important that you people see the videos of the patients and the families. And the best way to do that is to go to my author site. Cause there's a link to videos and, and whatnot. 
and that's Dr. Christ, Dr. Dr. Uh, Christopher Kerr, K-E-R-R.com. Yeah, and I put links for everything on Hey Human Podcast. Oh, good. Yeah, because well. it's it, it really is. It's it's important. One of the reasons why, like, whenever we lecture on it, we insist on showing videos because you can't do it justice until you've actually heard the people themselves describing it. I think it makes a huge difference to be able to see. I mean, we humans, we have a pretty strong bullshit meter, right? So we humans, we see somebody else telling a story and we can tell if it's true, if it's resonant, right? It resonates in us as much as it resonates in the person telling the story. And I do think that that is, so like in your TED talk, when you showed some of the videos and also on your website and in the Netflix series, it makes a huge difference. And there's, again, there's this weird thing around death. And I, I can't tell if people are more scared of the thought that there is something or that there might not be. Yeah, I, I, I think I think a couple of things. I think one is that, that um, it's hard to view death as anything else because one, w- what we see with our eyes is, is, is physical decline, is lessening. And what we experience is anticipat- anticipating loss and grief. And what gets lost in that is the patient's also having an experience, which may not be quite what we think it is. And it's actually often very positive and life affirming. We published a study, for example, where we um, looked at death as trauma and there's scales to measure post-traumatic growth. This idea that you can go into a traumatic experience like war. And yes, it's net negative and harmful and all of those things. But there are also positive things that come out of negative experiences. And that's what we found in the dying process for people who are having these experiences is that they were showing real gains. So even though you're physically diminishing, there's this paradox in that you're gaining an understanding, you're adapting and learning and that sort of thing. Really quite remarkable. We only see the, the less piece. Well, even the fact that people who are very close to the end have an increased frequency of these reported events means that spiritually, psychologically, cognitively, they're very much alive. Um, they're not, they're not getting quieter, you know, they're, they're, it's richer. Yeah. I've read and I have nothing to base this on other than what I've read is that uh, people just before death are more alive than they are, unless they're incredibly sick, but that there's a thing about how they sort of wake up out of it for a hot second and then, yeah, that's a that's a very known phenomena. It's a clinical lore, but it's also studied, and it's called terminal lucidity. And nobody understands it, but everybody who works with most people who work with elders or people who are dying get it. Um, it's really bizarre, uh, but people will waken. Um, what's very interesting is demented patients will often pop up and they'll recall family members' names they haven't said in a year, things like that. I think one of the ideas, at least my version of this, is that um, you can rekindle memory, right? So particularly people who are demented with old photographs or old music they listen to because their memory is more more definable and more accurate distant. So they may not remember what they wore, what they had for breakfast, but they will remember what they dress they wore to the prom. And so I have a, I wouldn't be surprised if these inner experiences are so rich, active and ongoing um, that, that they're kindling memory. And so they're waking up and, and, and their recall is better. Um, and some of them are just remarkable. We have a lady on film who's in the documentary who's very, very demented and She's very close to death and she keeps trying to escape the nursing home. And what she was trying to do was every night before bed, she was having very intense, almost lived experiences of memories of her husband who had passed away. And so she's trying to leave the building because she's going to go to the, she's going to her own wedding. So she's facing the end of her life, but she's actually reliving the best day of her life, which is her wedding. Um, so a lot of very interesting stories um, like that of people who, whose emotional self is actually more vibrant towards the end of their life. Is that what you mean by what you said a minute ago between the brain and the mind? I think so. You know, I don't think you can map, measure, biopsy, 
do an MRI and find this no more than you can love um, um, or joy. Uh, I mean, you, you, those sort of emotions you can with certain scans. I don't think this you can. So, you, so that's a that's a great point, actually. Do you do that as part of the research? Do you scan their brains for activity that is phenomenal? No, because I, I, and, and I'm not a fan of it because I don't think um, I think we just need to have reverence for certain things. Uh, the absence of them on a screen or on our version of today's technology doesn't deny their existence. So if somebody had a scan and it shows nothing, I wouldn't give a damn. Um, I think that's really the point is we need to be actually listening to the words and experiences of these people and just honoring them for what they are. And if, if you need to have, um, uh, you know, objective data, then I think you're kind of missing the point. Sure. But does the information that you get in all this research, uh, I'm, I think about other cultures where death is such a vibrant part of life. I mean, there are some cultures where every year they get the bones of their ancestors and dress them up and, you know, have dinners with them and things like that. Those cultures exist and they have for thousands of years. Certainly that would be abhorred in American culture, if not, I think, punishable by by prison so did you find that across the board that it didn't matter sorry i'm sorry that it didn't matter where uh they were from but maybe find that it was even more exciting and vibrant in cultures that were more accepting yeah there were more there's huge differences in people's age so if you've lived long enough you've seen this you know you've known a family like you've already had one experience with a friend whose child had kind of that no, it's not the same thing, but the more people you learn to see die, the more common it is. Um, it is interesting, you bring up a really good point that this this is actually central to a lot of cultures and always has been and, and still there in indigenous people. I actually had a really funky experience about two months ago. Um, a three-time Emmy Award winning, winning film producer who's in Australia named Lynette Walworth um, actually contacted me. And she's working with indigenous tribes of uh, the Amazon in Australia and <clears throat> filming them for a completely different reason, nothing to do with dying. But this came, these experiences came up. And I forget how the quote was from one of the elders, but basically we're sad. Um, we're sad for loss, but we don't lose hope for these people because they're so, it's a very important part of their lineage that they reconnect with those they've lost and, 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 and who have died. And so what happened was she just kind of accidentally this came out with working with these folks and then someone pointed her to the book and she gets on the phone and she goes, you know, the stuff you're describing, she goes, they actually have language for it. Um, that this is, it's part of, it's, it's, it's integral to their culture and their belief systems, which we all always knew. I mean, it really has been discussed. It's in the Bible. It's, it's you know, um, you know, it's in Orson Welles movie, whatever that was, Rosebud at the end. I mean, it's always been there. It, it's, it's, um, you know, we've more, it, it, we've kind of lost our way with dying. Um, I think we're starting to see people regather. This generation wants more control and say, so you're seeing this reemergence of interest in it, but yeah, it's, um, it's, it's always been in other cultures. Do you think kids, regardless of where they're from, kids are better with death than their adult counterparts? Yeah, many ways. Um, you know, um, ch children do life and death differently in that there aren't reference points. So they don't, they don't have regrets. Okay, you never hear a 10-year-old, geez, I, you know, wish I played soccer when I was three uh, or grade three. I mean, they just, they don't live that way. They're very much live in what's present. And I, I take care of um, children in our hospice. And one of the things that I've always been baffled by is people who, children who are very close to death, how incredibly important it is they do the thing that's in front of them, like go to school which uh, if, if most people who knew they had a limited life would not want to keep working, right? Like they, if, I mean, beyond financial reasons, they, they wouldn't 
want to dredge through another day of work. They'd want to do other things. Children really are just focused on now. They don't live in the regret with the regret. They don't have reference points for mortality. Um, They're not confounded by these other questions. Um, I think, you know, yeah, they do it very differently. They do it great, more gracefully. The other remarkable thing about children that is just is hard to put into words is how their concern really shifts for those they're leaving. Um, the strength of their empathy uh, is is always palpable. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's less concern for self. I, I you know I don't hear children talk about themselves in sorryful ways. Um, they deal with the limitations. Um, of their illness and they just kind of keep going. Um, Yeah. Do you find that some people, when they're experiencing people coming to them, that they are taking care of business as it were, cleaning up maybe old housework, like um, maybe bonds that were broken, get reconnected or people that feel that they may have wronged or somehow drop the bomb. Yeah. yeah I, I, and, and we write a lot about this and we've written a lot about this and, um, and it's a, it's definitely a strong theme in, in the book, this idea that, you know, we've all been kind of injured for having lived. <laughs> yes. It, it's, it's, um, and those wounds get addressed and some of them are, are done so in very profound ways. Like in the Ted talk, I talked about the, the veteran who had 60 years of tra- PTSD and that got addressed. You know, I, I, some of them are just really interesting. You know, I, I had a, uh, a guy who lost his arm when he was eight and he's from a blue collar family post-depression where work was manual and, you know, a lot of kids and how was he, what was his identity? How is he going to live? Who's going to love him, help him get dressed, whatever. And, you know, of course, that, that shaped his identity, his core. And at the end of his life, He's dreaming that all of his coworkers are coming by him and telling him um, what a good, good, how good he was at his job, that he was better than everybody else. So the, this, uh, whatever the wounds is tends to be addressed. Um, if you had to boil it down thematically, it's love and forgiveness. Um, it's, it's a lot of that. What's interesting is there's this kind of editing process and that people who withheld love or conditioned love are often excluded. Um, from these experiences. So we see a lot of this. And there's a lot of characters in the book are like this, where one parent was particularly you know, guarded um, or not expressive or demanding, um, and they're excluded and the other person isn't. So it boils down to these key fundamental relationships in, in life. I've even seen people actually who, <laughs> one lady who had three husbands, and um but she loved the second one and of course one and three aren't there but the second one is isn't that interesting mm-hmm. how did religion coincide with it now spirituality to me is completely different than religion and religious beliefs obviously and then lack of religious beliefs atheism or nihilists for that matter well so we're not the first to report this we've wrestled with this a lot to be honest with you people dream more of their pets than they do religious symbols and icons um, and um, there's a beautiful article that made it on CNN by written by a uh, Harvard Divinity student named Carrie Egan, who actually wrote about this. And she, she says it better than I ever will. That's why I always got to cite her. And what she said, which is what we found. So, so no, we don't, we don't very rarely do we hear references to, you know, a mosque, a church, Jesus, but, the argument goes something like this, which is that the the first and last classroom, if God is love, and the first and last classroom of love is our family. And, you know, if God is love, these are the things that people dream about. So in the end, what we see, the best way to say it is that we don't, we don't dream at the end of our life about the symbols of religion, but we do of the tenets of faith. And the two strongest tenets of faith are love and forgiveness. So you could actually argue that these are these experiences are entirely consistent with the pillars of every major belief system. 
Um, so they're not loaded with envy, jealousy, hate, regret, all of those those things. They're they're really they're really laden with the best of uh, of having lived, the best pieces of having lived, and they validate life. You know, um, so I, I, you know, it, it's it's a really interesting perspective, and we address it in the book, and we have a chapter on it because we looked at that too, and there was no difference whether people what belief system they had. Of course, it's really hard to tell because when you ask people about the a lot of people will say, for example, yes, I'm Catholic, but I don't practice. So you never really know. Um, and, and to your point, they could be deeply spiritual without formally relying with the religious belief system. So. But yeah, it's, I don't think they're incongruent. That's where I kind of come out. How has this shaped you? How has all this work changed you? Or have you stayed in the same mindset? Or where, where do you stand now for yourself and your, your time on this planet? Um, well, I think it's made me a better doctor um, because it's a wonderful way to, it's a privilege to hear people um, kind of in their truest self talking about the things that matter um, and just being witness to that. Um, I'm not, I'm not by nature this way inclined at all. Um, I, 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 to be honest, I find it all discomforting. So I'm like the last person who would um, go this direction. So I, I'm kind of a good guy to be talking about it because I'm sort of the last person in the church. Um, I, I don't have a, I, I, I'm more discomforted by things that are paranormal. I don't, you know, um, go there. Um, and, but, um, you know, you can't do this for this long and not be, not to think that there's not a better story. So if I entered this thinking more, I either, I don't know, or there's finality and that's it. Um, I come out of it now thinking, no, there's a much more better story that we stay very much connected to those we love, whether they're present or gone. So between and across lives, um, you see it all the time with mothers who lost babies, lost pregnancies, and they could be 90 years old and they're holding the baby again. I mean, the, those powerful components of life um, are interwoven in a way in us that they don't go. And what's fascinating to me is the, somebody says this in the documentary, you know, it's like not a memory. It's like it actually transpired. So they're, it's tangible to them. Just like you're looking as me is tangible. And the thing we hear most often is, no, you don't understand this actually happened. No, this isn't like a dream. Um, you know, it's very interesting. So it feels like a lived experience. So the, you know, again, you can be 90 and that, that important person is tangible to you, whether they're physically there or not. In other words, it's not a recollection. It's an in the moment experience. Yeah. 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 They're, they're emphatic in that. And in fact, they, they often have a trouble distinguishing between what is real and what isn't even though they're not confused because you can test, we test for confusion. So yeah, it's really, yeah. So I think it's affected me in that way. Why do you think the other side of it makes you uncomfortable or discomforted as you say? Oh, that's a good idea. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's, um, I don't know. I don't know if it's my maleness, my doctorishness. I don't know what the hell it is, but I don't, I'm not naturally that way inclined at all. Like I, I would never go to a medium or anything like that. Just, I, I imagine there's an exposure piece. I have no idea, but I just don't, I'm not that person. Yeah. Also, I suppose dipping your toe into that pond would then allow for people to sort of try and discredit all of your work. And well, what we've done, it's really, it's a, it's a great point. One of the things that we've really, really done, and um, it was unfortunate because we didn't know on that Netflix that it was going to be paired with all the other stuff, actually. And I haven't seen the other episodes because it's so disturbing. Our position is this, and it's really, really, really important. If you study dying, um, that's not to be interpreted that you're studying the afterlife. So people take dying and they view it as a keyhole, right? To look through to something. And it's like this 
blank sheet and you can put religion on it. You can put paranormal activity. You can put afterlife. You can put reincarnation. And we didn't want to edit our patient's experience. We didn't want to take people who were sharing with us what they were going through and say, you know what? This is what this means. It means that we live on or whatever. Never. Um, so, our, our view is simply is death is a mystery unto itself, regardless of what it heralds. And we have no right to take away from our patient's words by adding our interpretation onto it. We are merely translators of what they are telling us. We are not theorists on that. And I, I, I think for me as a doctor, it was really, really important because as soon as you start to go there, nobody's people. You're going to be preaching to a choir. There are people going, "Yep, yeah, that's exactly what I've always said." You go on, but on the clinical side of the fence, where I really wanted to people, I really am trying to. My goal was to kind of humanize the dying process. The physician community wasn't going to say, "Yeah," but you know, you had to just keep it somewhat objective. Does that make sense? Hundred percent. Absolutely. Yeah. So we didn't know that that like that that was really not our intent with a Netflix thing. We didn't know and and thought it was something else until it came out. Um, Did you go into this work? Uh, I my father is a scientist, and I remember when I was uh, a few. It was not that long. It was a few years ago, but um, he said. You know, people think that science is about proving things are right. And I've mentioned this on the show. So apologies to people listening. I've like, I've heard this so many times. But uh, that I I would think that science is about proving things that are right. And then he's like, no, no, no. We scientists are trying to prove that something is wrong. <laughs> so we're yeah. trying to find the fallacy. And I thought, whoa, mind blown. But did you go into it thinking, this, no freaking way is this a thing? And then. Well, yeah, that's how this whole thing started. So the whole thing started, it's how the book starts, is I, I didn't buy any of it. And I'm coming from a high-tech interventional side of medicine in an acute environment where you're taking care of people with heart attacks and ERs and things like that. And all of a sudden, I have no technology, and all I have to do is be present at the bedside, but I've got no tricks except to listen and, and be there and non-abandonment. And then I was confronted by it, and um, it was really off-putting, actually, you know, and I didn't know what to make of it. And where I ended up was, again, it was so obviously soothing. You know, you, you, you couldn't cure the wounds, but there's the, the deeper wounds were being addressed for these people. So I just, it got hard to ignore. And then, again, it was trying to teach people that these things matter. Um, that led to the research. But yeah, no, I, 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 ha I was dragged there. I just was confronted with it. And it was really nurses, actually, who, um, you know, said I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> they actually tracked down for the documentary, they tracked down the, the nurse who first told me basically to wake up. And uh, she tells the story well, but yeah. That's so fascinating. Did all of this then rewrite the the 12-year-old you who was experienced that last conversation with his father? Did that story get rewritten in your brain so that it, it became more of a gentle place? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's a great question. I I always knew what actually happened. It's just kind of a funny story is I didn't talk about it much. And, and um, I was preparing to give the Ted talk, which I really was trying to get out of doing. Um, I didn't know what Ted talks were. And um, I was, I, I took a friend of mine out to lunch. I said, you know what? I'm giving this talk on our research. And I got to tell you, I just feel really dishonest because I said, there's another side of it. that's more personal. And, um, but I said, I've never really shared it. And, and that's, so that's how it came about. In trying to tell the story, I just felt it was part of the story, kind of. The whole thing, uh, the arc of you, I think is a fascinating story and an important one. And I, I it's funny, I, I am more, whatever you want to call it, woo-woo inclined. And my experience of dying, uh, which I remember as if it were yesterday. I mean, I could close my eyes and remember it like a real memory because to me it is a real memory. I don't remember the one when I was three, but 
but I remember the one from the operating room. And uh, although I was woo-woo long before that, I suppose. But I think about those moments in your life and think all this work you've done and all these people you've touched and been present for, because I do think that that's so important to be present to the dying. Many people are so terrified of it because they're scared of their own mortality, right? They don't know how to lean into death. And there's so much... Yeah, and there's so much in those moments. I mean, between for for you personally and the person who is moving on to wherever, whether it's the dirt or the you know the heavens or whatnot. <laughs> but I think about those moments, like you saying, like, oh well, I I was in this one place and then it got shifted and now I'm doing this work, and I can't think that that's by accident because think of everything that has transpired. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny you say that. Is it is it is it i'm i'm probably try, i've tried to be the least consciously aware person in the world about this and you gotta wonder it's it's a pretty weird thing that the, one of the most formative moments of my life i end up doing is from childhood i end up doing a, a, as a, a life's work and the kind of the other funny piece of it is the farther i try to leave it behind and get it to go away I more I can't because people are are so interested like we're having this conversation yeah. So it's like it's ha haunting me. So I'm not somebody who sought this out. It, it, it's it's chasing chasing me. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love it, and I think you're remarkable. And yeah. I'm glad you're on the planet because I think people need someone like you. And to know that you're training others to understand this as best as as any one of us possibly can, I think makes the world a better place. So that's. Yeah, thank right. you for being here. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, you're really good at this. Oh, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, thank you for listening, everybody. Have a great wherever, wherever, however. Bye. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Bye.